Welcome back to Africa's a Country Talk. My name is William Shorky. If you don't know me by now, you'll never know. And I'm the host of AIAC's weekly talk and interview show. We've been on a break for a while, like everyone, and we're happy to be back. We hope you've had a restful break. If not, and you need to get your mind off things, then you're at the right place. So welcome to the new season. We hope you'll stick around for all of it. But if not, then you've come for a good episode because we're going to be talking about the African Cup of Nations, the 33rd edition of which kicks off on Sunday, the 9th of January. It's being hosted in Cameroon. They start the tournament by playing Burkina Faso. After that, Ethiopia is playing Cabo Verde. And it's no ordinary soccer tournament because no soccer tournament is ordinary. There's always a politics. There's always a history. And to unpack all of that, very happy to be welcoming onto the program founder and editor of Africa as a Country and a good friend of mine by now, Sean Jacobs, who is also professor of international affairs at the New School for Social Research and recently started a podcast on, on our other Substack, I should say, uh, on, on football called The Eleven Named People. So, Sean, before we start talking about AFCON, Tell us a bit more about this podcast and especially the title, because I think it's it's got a very good origin. I like how you're already calling it a podcast. <laughs> it's still because <it's laughs> I, I know what's coming. Not it's to, just not a, to it's just a weekly. Right now, it's a weekly Substack. I've only written one post, which is the introductory post, and basically, eleven name people is a reference to a quote by the Marxist historian um, Eric Habsbaum. Well, some people might call him a communist historian. From, uh, he's from Great Britain. I think he was born in um, in Vienna, or in Egypt, and grew up in Vienna. And which probably makes sense if I'm going to read the quote where he said, "The imagined community of millions seem more real as a team of eleven named people." So that's where that's where the inspiration for the name comes from. And in academic speak, it's it's a project about the history afterlives and futures of global black football. I mean, you can just hear already how pretentious it is. <laughs> but I do know that academics, they kill... Often when academics write about sports, and, and I hope nobody takes exception to this, um, they, they really, they could kill, you know, they kill the joy of, like, the sport, and it becomes like, you're like, why are these people writing about sports? So what I'm going to try and do with this is to do a project that explores um, mostly professional football as a site of cultural struggle and economic um, exploration, and especially the racial dimensions of it. Of course, you know, race and class globally um, as it plays out with football. So it's most, mostly about the global south, particularly about Africa. And if I wanted to narrow it even down more, it's mostly like me writing from my own vantage point of growing up in South Africa and trying to make sense of the the sort of like what was happening in CLR James's uh, description, like beyond the boundary. And the other quote, by the way, apart from from sort of Habsbaum's uh, in, in, the inspiration from Habsbaum, the other person who who inspired me uh, in in how I thought about this is CLR James, who's from Trinidad, and everybody knows who that is. And he, the quote that everybody always uses from him is, you know, this like, what do they? What do they know about crickets? I mean, I'm obviously messing up the quote, but it's a famous quote about what do you know about cricket that, that, that those who know who know about it? It's like Fela Kuti's um, 
famous, I think, what's it called? Who knows, go know. So that there's more to just what's going on on the field and that there's a lot else going on, whether it's the field, the tennis court. In my case, it's mostly football. But C.L.R. James wrote in Beyond the Boundary, he wrote that um, West Indians crowding to Tess bring with them the whole past history and future hopes of the islands. So at that point, there was this idea of like a West Indian Federation in the early 19, uh, late 1950s, early 1960s, with Jamaica sort of the lead of it, and it fell apart. But just that idea of kind of thinking about sports and um, political identity, cultural identity, um, and how that plays out. I want to explore this through this Substack once a week, write a post. Um, and then eventually, I think I want to also, because I, I want to do some academic writing, um, write sort of like creative uh, nonfiction pieces, um, and also oh, cool. operate on social media, do podcasts. So, you know, it, it, I've written a little bit about sport in the past, um, but I think this is sort of me kind of forcing myself to do something a little bit more kind of structure, like structured about sport. And I think, yeah, that's a good segue to, to talking about AFCON itself, because as a tournament in the, in the realm of global footballing tournaments, it already receives too little of the limelight. And I think it's history isn't as well known as perhaps that of the others. So thinking about this tournament starting on Sunday, how did it begin? So just by way of introduction, there there are continental tournaments for, you know, Asia, uh, Africa, South America, what is known as CONCACAF, which is the uh, North America and the Caribbean and Central America, the Euros, uh, so all of these, uh, they all have these like, continental competitions. Most of them happen every four years. Um, for some reason, <laughs> Africans decided to have a tournament every two years. And most of these tournaments date back to, I would say, the mid to late 1950s. So post uh, these continental tournaments to kind of post Second, Second World War. The exception being the South American version of the South American version, I think dates back to the 1930s. The uh, European, the Euros, is in the in the late 1950s, I think 56. And so, in uh, 1957, at the beginning of 1957, uh, was the formation of what was known as the Confederation of African Football. And then, right after they were formed, at the beginning of that year, there was like a clamor for a continental tournament. And so they came up with this tournament called the African Cup of Nations. And anybody who listens will recognize kind of the, the, the time, right? This is uh, 1957 is the independence of Ghana. So this is the period of decolonization um, in Africa. So that it kind of goes along with that. One of the just curious um, facts about that, that first tournament, which is held in February of that year, it has only, initially it has four participants, which are also the founding members of CAP. Because remember, there aren't many African countries that are independent at this point. Um, and so they are Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, and guess who? South Africa. South Africa. South Africa isn't <laughs> politically independent, but it, it's, oh, it's whites. Whites are independent, right? Whites are independent from Britain. Well, they're still in the Commonwealth. They haven't yet announced their, their white republic. Um, and so these four nations, they decide they're going to have this tournament. 
But here's where the first snag comes in. South Africa decides that it wants to field a all-white team. Now, we're not going to spend our time here just breaking down like how in South Africa at this point there's already like different associations for different racial groups and that the people representing South Africa in Khartoum, which is where they were meeting, um, are the whites. So South Africa gets expelled and three teams participate in the tournament. To remind people again, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia. Um, so what happens is uh, they, they only play, like in the end, they only play um, two matches. Egypt beat Sudan in the, in the one uh, semifinal. And then Egypt beat Ethiopia, which I think was considered like the first seed um, in the final. And so subsequent to that, they had the tournament every two years. So the tournament has been played since then for every two years. They, this, this tournament in Cameroon um, will be the 33rd. If you will allow me, I'll just give you a couple of other highlights from this history. In 19... Before, before you do, could, oh, yeah. I, could I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Do you know why they settled on two years as being the periodical rotation? And yeah, how has that stuck? That's a good... That's a, that's a, you, you're stumping me with that say. question. I, haven't, I need to go <laughs> look that up again. But I think, I think they just wanted... Like, one of the things you... At that point, I think to have a continental competition was sort of a sign of your independence or your arrival on the world stage, right? That you're having a competition. And I think the idea was just to have it regularly. I don't think they had any... There may have been any other... I mean, you have to remember, at that point, up until then, Africa had only one spot to go to the World Cup. And to get there, they had to play... At first, they played off often. I mean, if I I'm get my facts straight, but they used to play off against a European team. So I think at one point, Morocco qualified, but had to go play Spain and lost both games. And by the mid 60s, Af- there's one African team would beat all the other African teams. Remember, there's like eight or nine who are participating by like the early 60s. Yeah. That team would then have to go play um, the, the Asian winner. And then only one of them goes to the World Cup. So it doesn't make sense to just put all your energy on this tournament that's happening every four years. Like there's no other way. Maybe there's the Olympics, which I don't think at that point had football. But there's there's no other place where you could showcase the national team. And maybe it made sense to do it every two years. I think that may have been the reason. That sounds... Plausible. Just a little footnote, the first time that Africa could directly qualify for the World Cup, send a team directly to the World Cup, not qualify via a playoff with Asia, you know, or before that with a European team, was only in 1970 when Morocco got a, oh, wow. a spot. And what people, yes, and just part of that, we can go off on these many tangents, but just part of that backstory is that's because for the 1966 World Cup, Kwame Nkrumah who was then the president of Ghana and sort of, if you want, like the figurehead of the Organization of African Unity, he said that um, unless FIFA gives African teams a direct spot into the World Cup, that Africa would boycott the 66 World Cup, which they did. And they were then only rewarded with that one place in 1970, that Morocco went straight to the World Cup. And did, did Morocco have to... So Morocco didn't have to play any playoffs. How did it become? No, they didn't. Have, they have to the play other African that... teams. They had to play in uh, other African okay. teams for the qualifiers, but they didn't have to go play like an Asian team or or a European team, which it was 
before 1966. I see. So coming back to AFCON, tell us a bit more about how this tournament developed after its founding. It, it's, it seems like it reflects the development of post-independent Africa as a whole. Yep. So 1959, you know, there's a, the, the next tournament is two years later in Cairo and Egypt uh, wins. Uh, it's the same, it's the same teams, <laughs> same three teams. And Egypt won again. They beat Sudan. And then at the next one in 1962 in Ethiopia, and this would people who do know who know very little about African football wouldn't believe this, but Ethiopia actually won that um, won that tournament, beating Egypt in the final. Ethiopia, by the way, is in this in this tournament in Cameroon. The previous tournament they were in was in South Africa in um, in uh, 2013 when they did when they did very well. And not to to just summarize, then in the next decade in the in the 1970s is an interesting moment, and this is to partly answer your question about how this how this reflects kind of like the post-independence politics of Africa. In the 1970s, you see the emergence of like the the, the what was then known first as the DRC, but then it becomes known as Zahir. They they won the the, the tournament I think in 1970, and then they won again in 1974, and of course they go to the World Cup, and we could talk a little bit about this. But this is also when those debates about the relationship between football and dictatorships or football and authoritarianism. So, you know, like you give people, um, you, you, it's like the Romans, you give them entertainment. And if the football team wins, so if people remember in 74, the two black teams go to the World Cup, it's Haiti and Zahir. Zahir is run by Mobutu and Haiti is, is, is uh, run by the the Duvaliers, you know, like the, the very brutal regime. So that idea of like, you know, in the sort of the model of Franco, where you where you have like a football team that represents the nation, um, that happens. The big, the big team in Africa in the early 70s then um, is the team of the DRC slash Zahir. Um, then you had other, other, te- other teams, you know, emerge like Morocco, um, I think won the competition twice in the 1970s. Um, and Ghana won once. So Ghana, who had won earlier in the early 1960s when Nkrumah was building like a super team um, in Ghana, they won again in the in the late um, 19 uh, late mid mid to late 1970s. Um, and then Morocco, as I, Zahir wins again in 1978. The 1980s is actually quite interesting. That's when you see the emergence of what we think now today is like the big African teams. Like before that, you had like, as I said, you know, Sudan had won the, the, the African Cup of Nations once. Ethiopia had won it once. Even the Democratic Republic of Congo, that's the one, the, the Brazzaville Congo, not, the, not Kinshasa. Even they had won the competition, I think, in 72. But what happens in the 1980s is you then see the consolidation of the teams that we now think of as like the big African teams. So, you know, Ghana, um, Cameroon, Egypt, uh, who won the, the competition in 86, Cameroon won it twice in 84 and 88. Um, and you also have Algeria, who win, um, they went, they, they lost in the 1980 final to Nigeria, and they, they kept being in either the semifinal or the finals of the, of, the 19, of the 1980s tournaments. And in fact, they also go um, to the World Cup in the 1980s twice. Um, and then, of course, at the end of that, um, 
Algeria wins the, the AFCON in 1990. So that moment, this idea that now we think of Nigeria, Morocco and Algeria as like the big African teams, that's when that, that's when that starts to consolidate. Um, the 1990s, I mean, I'm not going to say much about that except to say two highlights. That's, that's the moment when Egypt wins again. They win their fourth, they win their fourth African Cup of Nations. And of course, that's the great moment if you're a South African. That's when South Africa wins its only ever um, African Cup of Nations in South Africa. Um, and then you have, of course, as the tournament keeps going in the, into the 2010s, Egypt wins it. Um, you have, you know, Zambia has this like the great, the great win of 2012 in Gabon after they they'd had a, the, the big air crash that happened in Gabon like a decade earlier. And then, you know, leading up to the present, the defending champions are Algeria. But let me just say something about your question about like how this tournament reflects kind of the history of decolonization. So some people might argue that except for the disqualification of South Africa in 1957 because of apartheid, you know, wanting to feel like an all-white team. And then in 1996, when South Africa won the tournament, the South African government... Um, or CAF, actually CAF, not the South African government, CAF threw Nigeria out of the tournament because uh, um, Abacha, who was then the military dictator of Nigeria, he had uh, murdered this guy, Ken Sarawiwa, Ken Sarawiwa, who was the leader of the of the Ogoni, um, who were fighting um, multinational oil companies, and eight of his other, of his compatriots, eight other activists had been murdered, and because of that, they were denied entry into the tournament, so they were at that point, there were 16 teams in the tournament. Remember, we started with four. By the late 60s, there were eight. Um, in the early 90s, there were now 12 teams in the competition. Then they turned, they decided to make it 16. And, and so now we had like these 16 teams in the, in the mid-90s with, with the South African tournament. And what happens is South Af uh, Nigeria gets told you can't participate in the tournament. So there were only 15 teams that played in the tournament. So those are like, for, for most people, they think of those, those two moments as kind of, uh, you know, the, the exceptional moments of like the, the CAF and, 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 and the and AFCON uh, in its history as, as bucking the trend, you know, so doing something, doing something right. But for the rest, if you think about how people think of decolonization, and we're not talking about the decolonization that the kids are talking about, but the original version it's mostly that of disappointment. Because as I said earlier, you have in the 70s, you have this idea of like, uh, football is associated with dictatorship. It's associated with, with authoritarianism, a sort of very undemocratic way that we think of football. Secondly, the game gets also uh, uh, taken up in, 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 in um, like this idea, like every... You, when you say you're going to host the game, then what happens is at the last minute, a t the, the, the host nation withdraws and then the competition gets handed to like, on a, on a fiat if you want, just at the last minute, they'll hand it over to another country. I think the first time that happened was with Zimbabwe um, in 2000. Of course, anybody who follows African politics will know that's the moment when Mugabe loses a referendum. Subsequently, he also loses an election and that although he stays in power, but that leads to like a certain kind of instability in Zimbabwe, economic recession, crisis. Zimbabwe cannot host the tournament. So then Ghana and Nigeria hosted. 
There's a pattern that develops because of that. Libya should host the tournament in 2013, and, and then they have a civil war. It gets cancelled. They have to host it again in 2017. The civil war is still going on. And so what happens in CAF is at the very last minute, they'll often pass the tournament on to like a second country. South Africa has done a lot of it. South Africa, I think that it did it twice already. Um, similarly, you had, so 1996 and 20, um, 2013, uh, Ghana, Nigeria has stepped in at times. And more recently, they've, they've uh, awarded the tournament to basically like one-party states or authoritarian regimes where no questions are asked as to whether or not you're going to host a tournament. So Gabon, Equatorial Guinea... Um, Egypt, they are, they are asked you know, um, um, to hold a tournament. Two other quick things um, to, to just say about how this reflects kind of the history of decolonization, this kind of history of disappointment. All, it, with very few exceptions, most of the coaches are European of these teams. And also, they are like third-rate European coaches often that you've never heard about. It's very rare that it's a, a very prominent European coach um, coaching a team, and there are very few exceptions. So Senegal, uh, now I would say for at least the last decade, has had a coach, Alion Cisse, who played in the 2002 World Cup for them, who has been the coach. Nigeria, for a very short time, had a really good Nigerian coach, Stephen Keshi, um, but for most of the other periods of time, they would have like a, usually for some strange reason, a German coach. Um, and the North Africans often had you know, Morocco or Tunisian coach, but also they favor also Belgian, French coaches. So there's a very strange way in which, um, you know, who leads the team. So kind of at some symbolic level, just replicating kind of some of the, some of the history um, of colonialism. And then I think the final part of the story is, which I know you'll come back to later, is the way in which um, the, the tournament clashes with, so... Historically, it's held in January, and that was that was long before football was organized the way football is organized now, the professionalization of the game, the way that everything is organized around the calendar of the European professional leagues. Um, and so you, you now have a situation in which every time there's an African Cup of Nations, there's this like blow up in the media, um, mostly kind of between European clubs, particularly English Premier League clubs, where a lot of the top African players play, and the national federations about whether or not to release the player. Because remember, the tournament is in January. That's in the middle of the European seasons. And particularly now in European competition like the English Premier League, where the margins between the teams are really small, the top teams or the teams at the bottom who could get relegated, if they have African players at the heart of their teams, suddenly they it's a problem for them to release them. And so this is a difficult debate which we can go into. But just part of this is the way in which the African game is still very much dependent on the decisions of or the needs of Europe. I think this is sort of just at a sort of at a level of a metaphor. It's just it's just this endless the endless way in which in which this plays out. Mm. And I, I suppose <laughs> another big thing was that since the nineteen eighties. AFCON changed its rules to permit more foreign-based players to form the composition of teams. Whereas before, if I remember correctly, 
it had to be the case that the bulk of your players were playing in domestic leagues. And so, as you're correctly pointing out, the development of this tournament continues to reflect relationships, neo-imperial relationships, and that obviously impedes the possibilities of African football becoming self-sufficient. Yeah, I mean, so it is true that it's it's not unusual that Africans have played in Europe. I mean, anybody who studied, uh, you know, who studies the history of football, I think if you look at sort of like Lauren Du Bois's book about um, about French football up until the, I think it's the 2006 World Cup. There's another book which I, which mm. I just uh, saw in the house the other day, called Sacre Bleu, which is about Mbappe football up until Mbappe and uh, from Zidane I think to Mbappe. So there's you know there's a long history in the way that France France thought about its colonies as sort of part of the you know the the empire. So you all. I would, I'm sort of uh, pulling my face here. You all are technically citizens. So you had lots of players from from African colonies playing in France. I mean, you know, uh, if you just think of some people who ended up as senators in the in the National Assembly, um, I'm trying to think of, or, or even someone like Yannick Noah's father played there. Many of the Algerian players who made up the first, that, that, that team, that during the struggle were like playing around the world, um, creating awareness about the Algerian independence struggle. All those players played in France. So particularly in the French context, there were always Africans playing in the French leagues. There were North Africans playing in Spain, you know, for, for Spain's top teams playing in Portugal. So it's not, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't an unusual thing that Africans played there. But I think in the 1980s, there was suddenly this, this kind of uh, uh, the signing of African players by European clubs. I mean, again, so the 1982 team from from uh, Cameroon that played in the in the World Cup in 1982 in Spain, um, some of those players like Roger Mila and a couple of others, they actually did play in Spain, in France, sorry, but many others played in a very self-sufficient local league. But in the 1980s, again, politics, right? Structural adjustment programs, economic recession, um, you know, uh, increasing inequality. So if you're a football player, like leagues are not working as well as they sh- as they did work in the 70s when there was like an economic boom or an oil boom in some of these countries. So what do you do? You go to Europe. Often you play in the lower leagues um, or the smaller teams, again, particularly France. But then there's an interesting thing where players from English-speaking countries also start to go to Europe. That's like Abedi Pele, well, I think initially he goes to the Gulf, then he goes to Switzerland, then he also ends up in France. By the end of the decade, he's in Marseille. Um, Stephen Keshi like goes to Belgium. So there's a lot of like players from from you know even Zambia. I think after the Olympics, Kalusha Bwala goes to Belgium. So there's a lot of players who leave Africa and they go play in in, in Europe. And so the game, the African game, also now has to respond to this. They have to take into account. That they that some of their best players um, are playing are playing um, playing in Europe. So that's I think where where that changes the game somewhat. And I think it also then there's no warning yet of these kind of fights that we see now. You know this fight over who wh- whether or not a player should be should be playing in a team. 
uh, you know, should, should, should be asked to leave their professional team and come to Africa, then there's a whole uh, brouhaha in the press. I think a lot of that probably, it only really starts maybe in the early to mid-2000s, which is when you have, say, Chelsea has um, Didier Drogba, Essien, uh, Obi Mikel, Solomon Kalou. So that's the first time, or, or Arsenal has, uh, uh, I think Arsenal in the early, was, when did Arsenal have a Kanu, like players like that. So that's that moment when African players are now at the heart of your team. They're not just, you know, kind of marginal figures, substitutes. Um, uh, if well, the, the Everton had, I think, um, uh, Yakubu, Joseph Yobo, from Nigeria, both from Nigeria, and then they had South Africa, Stephen Pinar. So that's that moment when, when, when you're right, it starts in the, it begins in the 1980s, it goes through the 90s, because after that 1990 World Cup, when Cameroon plays so well, a lot of countries, the Mexican clubs, uh, you know, clubs in Argentina, clubs in other parts of Europe, starts to hire African players like they never did before. Um, but I would say it's mostly in the early 2000s that this debate about what to do with the players and whether the players, you know, whether a club could hold on to his players or they had to release the players, that debate begins. And just one last point on this, that's also the moment when Sepp Blatter actually says um, we shouldn't, we, we should change the rules on when this cup is played, that this cup cannot be played anymore in January. It should now be played in June or July in the European summer. It should coincide with our calendar so that's when that change happens, and he proposes that it should start in 2016. But I would say that that's the moment where that, that starts happening. Mm. They, they actually adjusted the start date for the last AFCON in 2019, which took place in, in Egypt, and that was in June, July, during the Northern Hemisphere summer. And then now we're returning to the January and February starts. So well, this tournament... This big circus... I mean, just to quickly respond to that, because I, mean, I see where you're going with this, but I would argue, though, that the, 20, um, the next tournament right was 2021. The problem was it was COVID. So yes. you had to move it to like a different year. And, you know, the fallback is um, you move to, to, this, to, to January and, and uh, this January again, which I think at that point... It wasn't clear when the Qatar World Cup was being held, that it was going to be held in Christmas um, and not in June and July. Yeah, yeah, that's right, actually. It makes sense to do an early annual start tournament so you can make up for the last time. And, um, and thinking about the circus that's now exploding in European professional club football, which is this argument that they're going to suffer because AFCON takes place right in the middle of these leagues and in fact in the penultimate moments and this is in contrast to other tournaments such as Copa America, Copa Oro, the Asian Cup, so on and so forth. Is this a real concern? Is it just European clubs being unscrupulous and selfish? Does AFCON perform better, appeal to a wider audience when it takes place during a scheduling that people are more familiar with or does it belong in in january february and thinking about trying to encourage people to watch in in africa i mean assuming a post-covid world and so on i mean it's a difficult this is a difficult one for even 
for even myself, like I, I, I think before, if you had asked me this like a couple of years ago, I would have said pasta, you know, like who cares <laughs> about Europeans? Um, this this tournament is historically been held in in the, in the January period, um, and it's something every two years. As a, I mean, I'm still a fan of African football, even despite all my my you know everything that the CAF does or the way the game is organized on the continent. Um, so you look forward every other January to seeing you know the best players of Africa playing in these tournaments, and you also notice that like the all the Afri- all Af- the African footballers take it seriously. They want to play in this tournament. They actually, I mean, if Mohamed Salah didn't care about the African Cup of Nations, um, he wouldn't play in this tournament, right? Sadio Mani, Edward Mendy, they wouldn't play in these tournaments. In this tournament, sorry. So they, the players, I think, take it seriously. Um, historically, I would say fans have taken the tournament seriously. It is the case that this is very different. As you said, it's happening in the middle of a pandemic. Like, um, how do you have like a football tournament um, during a pandemic? It doesn't help. And I know we're going to get to this also, that it's that it's in Cameroon with all its um, political problems. And Cameroon is just acting like, ah, it's just business as usual. You're running a tournament. Stop complaining about the civil war. Um, in the east, uh, in sorry, in the, in the western part of the country. So, you know, there's 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 that part of it. At the same time, I think it's 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 easy to forget like the that these are this is about the lives of these professional football players because if they're not there, they can lose their place. Yeah. And I, I I've read some I've read some stuff in the last week where players talk about how returning. Back into the back into like a competitive league after like the intense way that you play in CAF, you know, the, 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 it's over one month. It's quick. There's a game every other, you know, I think every third day. If you stay for the whole tournament, you win the thing. That's a whole month. Um, often your team is sort of lopsided, so there's like one or two good players, and there's well, again, I'm saying this is somebody who's not very good at football. But I'm just saying, <laughs> there are there are really excellent That's why we're footballers. Doing the podcast, John. And then there That's are, why we're not on the field. Right, there are really good footballers, and then there are these like run of the mill footballers. So it's like you know Adebayor, and then there's the rest of Togo, or there's there's um, uh, Mohamed Salah and and come on El, El Nene, you know Trezeguet. Um, these they are not the same as Mohamed Salah. So you like you if you're Mohamed Salah, it's like a lot. Then you have to go back to Liverpool or you have to go back to your team in Italy or your team in France. And that's a lot. So the players are complaining about it more and more. The players are complaining about the fact that... And not to mention the risk of possibly contracting COVID. Contracting COVID, getting injured, like all of that is part of it. Now, it is true that the clubs were... the, the if, 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 if this was the, the, the Copa America or the, 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 the Gold Cup for the North America or the Asia Cup, they would have released their players because all those tournaments take place correspondingly in a summer, right? So they would have done that. The, the main problem, I think, is the fact that this thing is held in January. Now, let's get to your question about um, is this like a real thing or is this just nonsense? So... The European clubs, the I think the league that's probably the most affected by this is definitely the English Premier League. In most of the other leagues, well, the French league 
um, they've known they you know they've they learned how to live with this because a lot of the players like full squad the whole Algerian squad probably with a couple of exceptions Mares a couple of other players who play in, in in Italy they play in France right so the 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 problem is like the French know how to deal with this the question is like the English Premier League had never dealt with this at like at this intensity. This is the first time, except for that period I mentioned of like the starting. I would let me not say the first time, but starting in the mid two thousands, this this has been like this is now a thing, because if I'll mention just two teams, if you take the English Premier League, um, I think there's there's just the the number that's always thrown around is that there's up to like forty forty players involved who have to go to the Afcon to this Afcon that at least 16 of the 20 teams are uh, you know affected by this I would actually argue that it's maybe like five or four teams that are really affected by it the first is definitely um, Arsenal I don't know people always talk about Arsenal but Arsenal is really Surely affected it's well Watford is one of them like, yeah. but Watford in yeah. Watford's case the, the Nigerian Emmanuel Dennis who's like their top scorer uh, he is not going, and this is because of some. Oh, well, isn't he? I don't know this actually. No, he's not it's going because there was a me. breakdown in communication. I think between the, the between Watford and the Nigerian FA, um, and also there's all kinds of talk about how he he has a player. Uh, he didn't help the process. He had he had fallen out with the previous coach, so he was not in a hurry to go back to the team. But it's also the Nigerian oh, FA at wow. first said he wasn't going. Then at the last minute, they called him up. So, you know, he's not playing. And then only, I think, until... Um, uh, I mean, this is being recorded on, on the 7th, January the 7th. Um, I think on January 6th, Ismail Assar, who's from Senegal and also plays for Watford. It was only on... The tournament starts, like, three days later. And it was only on, it was only on like, on, on the 7th or the 6th when Watford said, when Watford agreed that he could join Senegal. So Watford, I think, is not so much, I don't think that's a big problem. I think it's really Arsenal who has like yeah. Thomas yeah. Partey for Ghana. Uh, uh, well, I'm going to, I'm sort of laughing when I say his name, Aubameyang for Gabon, who, who is not really in their first team anymore. Mm-hmm. And also just contracted COVID in Dubai. Pepe, right, from, the, from Cote d'Ivoire. And El Neni, um, and I think there's another young Tunisian yeah, player. Yeah, Omar Omar Rekic. Yeah, who's 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 who has, who's joining their teams? Chelsea Ziyech is not going for Morocco. They left him out of the squad. But Chelsea who always had problems with their goalkeeper. Uh, uh, what's his name? The 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 the, the Mendy. No, oh, the no. one the Spanish player from uh, the basket. Yeah. So Kepa. So they, they they but they losing the guy who replaced him and who's like sort of their best. You know who's the heart of their defense? Mendy, Edward Mendy to Senegal, and I think the two other teams, uh, Crystal Palace, um, Koyati from Senegal, the player that, that the English media loves to hate, Jordan Ayew at Ghana, and Wilfred Zaha to Cote d'Ivoire, um, and then of course we know there's there's Leicester, Kelechi. Oh, they're they're losing a lot, yeah. Didi, Amarti. Um, these are all these are players like at the heart of Brendan Rodgers' team, right? And then finally Liverpool. I mean, way more than come on, way more. You know, I'm just saying this because I'm also a Liverpool um, fan, <laughs> of course, supporter. Of course. But, well, 
Well, Klopp's always the funniest about it, so I'll give Liverpool that. We should get to that Klopp comment that he made that everybody's mad about. But like, Salah, Sadio Mane, and Nabi Keita, those are like players at the heart of Liverpool. So, they if, if, if they're from three different teams. Salah might be back after like, I think, two weeks. Because I don't think Egypt is... Egypt will probably make it to like the round of 16 and that's it. Sadio Mane, Senegal could make it yeah, to the he's, final. He's there to the final. <laughs> yeah, and Nabi Keita's Guinea could maybe get out of the first round, but we don't know. But like, you know, that's at least you losing those players for at least two weeks. And in one case, you could lose him for the whole month. So it at some level, the, there's an overreaction, um, you know, to say, oh my God, we're losing all our players. But then it turns out most of the players that are leading for the African Cup of Nations are players who sit on the bench um, or have fallen out of favor. And that it's only in, I would say, four or five cases that they're losing, that they're losing um, uh, key players. You know, that they, that they lose uh, key players. And just on Klopp, by the way. So Klopp was at a press conference and he was using a sort of figure of speech by saying, oh, you know, we have to deal with all kinds of problems with players having for call-ups. And in January, there's that little, there's the matter of that. He didn't say the matter. He just said, there's that little tournament in Africa. And I, it was like a figure of speech. You know, that sort of like, there's that little matter yeah. of. Yes. And so and a, a journalist from Nigeria, a Nigerian journalist, I think he works for Gold.com. He sort of ran with it and kind of questioned Klopp at a, at a press conference um, suggesting that this was racist. And then I saw now, yesterday, um, Jeremy, who played for Cameroon, um, um, I think he had played for for Chelsea, if I remember. Uh, he's retired now. He wrote a, a piece for the Daily Mail of all people uh, saying Klopp was racist. So, you know, there's there's a way in which there's just like, there's a real problem here, which I think does affect the players. But then I think there's also just kind of bombast and nonsense um, that surrounds it just to create kind of uh, uh, controversy. And one last comment on this is like to say that, oh, you're letting all these players go play in a COVID, you know, in an area where there's a lot of COVID. It, it sounds also disingenuous because didn't they just play the Euros? Yeah, exactly. Like a whole COVID Ian thing? Wright had a great sort of take on this I saw somewhere. About this, about why why bring up yeah, COVID yeah. when it's the African Cup of Nations? Exactly, yeah. the yeah. hypocrisy of European pundits yeah. and all. Exactly. So I think, yeah, it. I think I don't know. I think even though in most cases the players who are leaving to play in Afcon are not star hitters for their respective clubs. I agree with you that there's probably a real problem that if you have your big names now in a, between a rock and a hard place where they feel compelled to choose between club football and national football and during COVID, the demands of doing both just are too insurmountable, then it becomes an unavoidable problem because it would be great if national teams sourced most of their players from domestic leagues and that was enough to create interest and so on but it does seem like in Africa itself Africans enjoy AFCON because they get to see the players they watch in European leagues 
play for the national footballing teams and without them the interest would wane oh yeah nobody would watch it i mean there's another tournament that's also played for for african national teams it's called the 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 the, the chan the african nations championship where only mm-hmm. local players uh play in um it was first held in uh, 2007 and i think they've played like five tournaments since then and the last one was actually held in cameroon nobody watches that i mean i think i'm kind of you know i'm weird so i watched it it's like somebody um i called up a friend i, um, I called him tony karen the other day and was like yo i'm watching liverpool in the in some obscure cup and he was like i'm not watching that but i'm that kind of fan who actually will watch that stuff so the so regular Africa should try hard at that actually we could win some silverware if we put all of our well, eggs. The, so the thing about the that is, to, to, to your point yeah, about those kind of tournaments and people wanting to kind of show, watch the best players in the African Cup of Nations perform, you would assume that if you say for Chan, that C-H-A-N, that only local players would play, that those countries that have well-run leagues like South Africa, well, it's Morocco, I would say South Africa, Algeria... Tunisia have good, you know, well, well organized professional leagues that they would do well in those tournaments, but actually they don't. I mean, with the exception <laughs> of Morocco, I think like the DRC has won it, which is the DRC has one of the best teams in Africa, um, Tipi Mazembe, who also played in the World Club Cup competition. But the DRC is is not it doesn't have a well run local league yet it's won that tournament I think like twice or something. South Africa I don't think has ever won that tournament. So it's a weird thing. I mean this the, the theory as to whether or not if you have a well run local league that you would do well in continental competition or the World Cup, um I don't think it's 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 a good I mean I I would I would love to believe that. But I think it's the case that the teams whose players are playing in Europe in the best leagues, they they do the best in these continental competitions and they do the best in the World Cup. To, so to go back to just the previous question, as much as I want to hold on to, you know, I don't know, like, who cares what the Europeans are and think of this as an anti-colonial act to have a tournament in January, I don't think it's working anymore. I think the tournament should be held, like they said, every other summer when there's not a, and not which which is not which then doesn't coincide with the year of a World Cup, right? So it's not like uh, 2002. You don't have it in the year of the World Cup because you you want to have it in the in, in odd numbered years, but COVID now messed with it. So hopefully, I think the next tournament is in 2023. I think in uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, but. I think that that's the the, the 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 truth is this is the way football is working right now. It's not like Europe is going to change their calendar and stop playing football for the whole of January. Yeah. So, yeah. for the sake of the players and for ourselves, I think we need to move this tournament to the summer. But again, it, this is we didn't even talk about CAF. This is run by this thing called the Confederation of African Football. So it's not like they're doing some of these things on principle or maybe they they know how to do these things. They just run football badly also, which doesn't mm. 
help when you think about, oh, let's just move it to another time? You would think that there would be more proactive in trying to mitigate this stuff because it's in their commercial interests to have a tournament that suits consumers' preferences. And it seems like most people would want to watch a tournament in the middle of the year. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's what I, I like. I like that thing where it's like the summer, um, you know. Okay, I'm speaking as somebody who is a professor. Maybe I don't get... I, I hope they never change the the rules of being acad- an academic, but you get your summers off so <laughs> to do research, right? So it's also... It's good then to, to, to watch football like at that time of the year. Except I will say one other small thing to... to to argue, make a, to argue against my own point, football is not played anymore. Like in the the you know the like starting in September and ends in May, and then footballers get a break and they go play in these tournaments in these national tournaments. Now also football gets played all the time. Mm-hmm. So and that's the trend with this. Mm-hmm. You know, once every two years, World Cup that's on the cards. So, so then like, what, what's wrong with playing same. a tournament? Then the people who argue for January might say, you know what? We might as well play our tournament in January. Who cares about them? Who cares about Europe? Because they want us to play football all year. They don't give the players off. Let them have their January. Poor players. They should, they should unionize <laughs> or something. <laughs> so let's let's maybe wrap up and... And talk about the tournament itself. Mm-hmm. It's starting on Sunday. We're recording this on Friday. Hopefully it's out before the first match goes live. But who who are the favorites this year? I think I think it's pretty obvious, but are there any dark horses or teams to look out for? Any surprises possibly on the cards? So the African somebody once said like football is like real football or soccer, right? Is the closest thing that we have to real life. I think I'm trying to. I was a German sociologist. <laughs> yes. I think he worked on on French uh, football, like mostly on sort of like um, the fa- fan culture. Uh, I have to find the essay, Robert Marseille. But um, so, like I said, the teams that emerged after 1980 as the kind of powerhouses of African football, um, not because they have the best organized leagues but because they, they seem to have an abundance of talent and their best players play in the best leagues in Europe, which, you know, which is where you, if you're good, that's where you go play. So I think the, the winners obviously are going to come from those teams. And I would say that the odds-on favorite is Algeria. Um, Algeria, is, they're defending champions. They, they won the last tournament in, in, uh, that was played in Egypt in 2019. They have not... I th- I stand on the correction, but I don't think they've, they hold a record now for having not lost a game in a whole bunch of years now. They haven't lost a single yeah, game. I think that's right. And they've beaten anybody who comes in front of them by like five goals. They won that final actually in Egypt by sort of a free goal where like their striker, um, Bach, uh, Baghdad, <laughs> that's his first name, Buhamede, he kicked the ball. It hit the foot of one of the defenders of Senegal. And then it like made this weird, like, sort of curl, bounce, and into the back of the net. Um, and they held on to that 1-0 lead for the rest of the game. And also, Senegal, by the way, got cheated by... That was the first tournament that the Afghan used VAR. 
and Senegal got sort of cheated out of a penalty when the ball hit the, yes. the arm of one of the Algerian players. But back to your question, yes, Algeria are the favourites, and not just because they haven't lost the game, but they also, with their sort of like second team, they just won the Arab Cup, which is a separate thing that we didn't even talk about, that had just happened in December, in the middle of the season, although they didn't have to give up their star players to go play in this tournament. But so they're defending Arab Cup champions, some of those players are in this team, they are the defending African champions. They're on form. They have Riyad Mahrez, who is, uh, who's, you know, who's not at the... Some people might argue he's not at the heart of Manchester City's team, but he was an EPL Player of the Year when he was at Leicester. You know, he's an incredible footballer. He's like sort of like their creative mind, their, their genius, creative genius. So they're definitely going to win the tournament for me, I think. I think secondly, Senegal... With uh, because they they have a nice you know they have a decent football team right they have Sadio Mane from Liverpool like probably the best player from here at Liverpool Edward Mendy in goal like that's probably the best goalkeeper in the world right now and they have Khalidou Koulibaly who's like my spirit animal along with Socrates from Brazil <laughs> they have those and a lot of like oh and the guy who plays for PSG in the midfield. Um, uh, Ghana gay, you know, they have a really good football team. So they, um, I, I expect Senegal to to play as well as they played in the last tournament. They've never won the tournament. I read an interview this week with Al-Hajj Duf saying like that, that everybody thinks this is the right moment. He was actually also criticizing uh, Senegalese football fans who he said don't always care about AFCON, but this is this is something that they really should get into because they finally have a good they finally have a have a have a good team then I would just mention two other teams that I think are, are, are sort of also runs although I don't think they'll win the thing Egypt of course they were they've won this the championship like seven times yeah um, and they but everybody knows they are like a one-man team as I said earlier they got only Mohamed Salah and then they have like a bunch of players also playing at like West Ham and Arsenal, but who are not like world beaters. And then they have um, uh, a lot of players who play for two particular clubs, Al-Akhli, who are the African champions, with a South African coach, by the way, um, and, uh, and also the African Super Cup champions. And then they have uh, Zamalek. So having those players from those, from like all playing for like basically two clubs, they all know each other, they played together for a long time. Um, maybe they can win the tournament. Except, as we remember, they got knocked out by South Africa, right? In the in the last in the last African Cup I, of Nations. I, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, we completely forgot. That's that's Lorch. You gotta find that that's song. That's typical Lorch. Lorch, Lorch. I'm bad at singing. And then I think the last one is Cameroon. You know, Cameroon is not Cameroon. Doesn't have like the they don't have a squad like Algeria or a squad like like Senegal, but they play at home and they have Andre Onana who's from Ars, uh, from Ajax in the goal and then they have mm, that guy who's... to enter soon. Right, and then they have that guy who never seems to get old. Um, Chip, Chipa Moteng. Eric Chipa Moteng. Chipa yeah, Moteng. Yeah, and who keeps getting to like... You're like, why, why is this guy popping up at a big club and then he scores again and then he they, they get rid of him and he goes to another big club and he scores there. So... <laughs> Those are like, for me, it's definitely between um, Algeria, Senegal, um, and then 
maybe they might surprise us, Egypt and Cameroon. I'm not going to say Ghana. Don't don't rule out the Super Eagles is what I was going to say. I think the Super Eagles they, in Nigeria could I don't be know, like they the Super Eagles... I don't. I don't know. They, 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 the Nigerian football team for me is sort of like the. So to my thesis that it doesn't matter that you don't have a national football league that is well run as long as you have like really talented footballers who can play in Europe and come together at a tournament. The Nigerian case, with some exceptions, I would say the mid, the mid nineties when they win, they won the the, the Olympic gold. They actually won an African Cup, I think, at that time. And they also got to the World Cup to the round of 16 in 94 in, in the U.S. Um, they, I, don't, I don't think that's happening for them anymore. They, they fired, like, the coach, the German coach, like, a couple of weeks before the tournament and then appointed, like, a former... I think he played in that 96 team in Atlanta, uh, the Olympic Games. They, 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 they fired... Um, that coach and brought in this like very inexperienced um, assistant. I think he was an assistant as the coach for the tournament. Their players, they, Ogalo is not there. His club didn't want to let him go. As I said, Dennis, Emmanuel Dennis won't be there. Um, and once you look past like sort of the one or two really good players that they have, a lot of their footballers don't play at top clubs anymore. They play in Europe, but they're yeah, playing true. in Turkey or in you know a small German club or something it's not like with the exceptions of I said in BG uh, Kelechi etc they, they play for really um, uh, for really small teams yeah any any team you'd be willing to put your money on I would say Algeria I think I put my money on Algeria, Algeria. yeah okay, I think Algeria gonna, by the way there was one other small on there was one other small thing which I will. I want to say this because I don't want to forget this. That I want to just footnote. Go ahead. Um, and it's that when Egypt won in 1959, Egypt was in the competition as the United Arab Republic, and that was Egypt and Syria as one country. So that's the African Cup of Nations that Syria was part of. Oh, yeah. And actually, and Egypt kept calling itself the UA, the the United African Republic, and I think until until nineteen um, seventy, um, and they competed under that name actually also until nineteen seventy, except that that republic ended in nineteen sixty one, because the Syrians were fed up with this bizarre relationship in which they were almost like the subservient part of a you know they were they were sort of effectively being colonized by Nasser. And they won. Yes. They didn't want to have any part of it anymore. Um, but yeah, there's, so there's like there's like weird anomalies um, in the history of of, of, of this cup. Yeah. Yeah. For in another episode, maybe once the tournament ends, we should probe what the future of African football is because sometimes it feels like a, a North Africa sub-Saharan breakaway might happen and. I don't know. I mean, there. Well, this new like two two small things. Just on that, two little things, and I will say something else, which I think is completely unrelated to this. But I do want to say this because I'm thinking of writing about it. The the on this question of like, I, I don't think necessarily there will be a breakaway because you know they've played in these tournaments so long. Why would Egypt keep That's give true. up on like their on on on, on the Bragging one rights, place yeah. on the one place where it has like records and winning and 
and and also like a lot of these footballers, like Algerian footballers, Tunisian footballers, they strongly identify with the with the Afcon. But now there is this thing called the Arab Cup, which was sanctioned yes. for the first time by FIFA, and it's essentially North African countries, uh, some islands of the Indian Ocean, and um, uh, parts of the Middle East playing in this cup. So Comoros, I think, is in this cup. Um, you know, all them the the the, the the North African countries are playing in it, including Sudan, which is a which is you know if you want to talk about political identity, right? This kind of shifting political identity of what is Sudan? Is it African? Is it Arab? And that that's sort of caught up, right, in its domestic politics and the politics of power and territory and so on. Um, so what is what is that going to mean? Are these uh, uh, are some of these national associations now? They sending locally based players, at, you know. The same kind of team, I think, that they send to the Chan, they send to this tournament. Is that gonna? If, if they take that stuff more seriously, will they send more of their players there? Because if if people's national identity is to think of themselves more as Arab, will they start, you know, shifting to that tournament? Like the energies, like the media energy. I mean, if you look at the 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 kind of the the sort of the the, the media around it, it didn't really. I don't know. It probably didn't come up on your radar that this cup was taking place. I knew it was going on, and I mostly watched highlights of it. But what if this tournament grows? It seems to be better organized mm. than AFCON. And better funded, I imagine. And better funded. So that's going to be interesting to watch a bit. And just on that, to my final point on this, is this question of, like, where will AFCON be played, right? So right now, it's always AFCON is, is um, the one who says they're going to host it. They don't host it in the end. It, it's sort of very arbitrary. It always gets to be hosted by by uh, some authoritarian regime that at the last minute can run it, or like, as I said, by a country like South Africa that has this kind of infrastructure. And here's what's interesting. The Arab Cup was played in Qatar. And there was a rumor during the... When, when it wasn't clear that Cameroon could host the competition because they have a civil war... Uh, they no, they people weren't sure whether they could, they could uh, host a tournament with twenty four teams because remember we had sixteen teams before and now we have twenty four teams. Yeah. That means I think eight more ga- uh, That's eight more teams. Sixteen, yeah, sixteen plus eight. So that's a lot more football matches. That means you need more stadium space. And and Cameroon before they lost they lost the tournament. When he went to Egypt, because they they didn't have the infrastructure, CAF told them, "We're taking the tournament away from you. You can't do this tournament." So the question becomes like, the this other tournament was held in in Qatar, and I I've mentioned this on Twitter many times. You have more and more international tournaments. If there's instability, or health issues, or infrastructural questions, you move these tournaments now to the Gulf. To the the Gulf uh, Cooperating Council countries, that you play like the the World Cup of cricket, the T20, you play qualifying rounds of the of major ten, uh, ten, tennis tournaments in Oman or, or Abu Dhabi or whatever. Um, what is what you you play you play the finals of the Italian Cup in Saudi Arabia? You play the Paris. You have the Paris to Dakar rally in Saudi Arabia. What what prevents you from saying, oh, we can have the African Cup of Nations in a Gulf country? 
That would be real decolonization, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know what that is. Because they next, have the infrastructure to host the 24 teams. You know, that's where football's going to go because that's where the money is. There's large... Uh, uh, people forget there's really large uh, diasporas of all these African countries, people working there, who have settled there, um, who can fill a stadium. If you look, look at the visuals of the Arab Cup and you'll look at the full stadiums and the fans of those teams. Oh, the Super Cup was just played. The, the, so, so right in Europe, you have the... You have the, the Europa League and you have the uh, Champions League, right? And the, the two of them play, they play in a match, I think at the beginning of the, is that the beginning of the next season, right? Or is it the end yes, of the... Yes, right at the start. Right, so they play for the Super Cup. So I think the last one was, uh, was it Chelsea and, uh, was it Villarreal or somebody? So you have... In Africa, you have the Champions League, and then you have another cup, which the name I forget, but it's a cup for the for those who won FA Cups, the equivalent of like your FA Cup and knockout competitions. That cup was just played just played now between Al Ali, who had been the Champions League, and uh, um, uh, Casablanca, um, the the team from Morocco, and they Raja Casablanca, and they played the Super Cup where in Qatar. Wow. So this is this is there's something going on here that uh, we don't know about, and this is that last part. Who's the head of CAF these days? It's a man called Patrice Motsepe from South Africa, which we haven't even said anything about. And I'd recommend that people read. There's a great piece in the Norwegian soccer magazine Josimar. Um, well, I think you know who Josimar is, but let we'll keep that as a quiz question for you for another time. Um, <laughs> uh, this, the Norwegian magazine Josima ran an article by Philippe Auclair, who's this um, French journalist who you'll hear him a lot in, in British media and podcasts and writing. I think he writes in The Guardian or a couple other newspapers. Um, and um, uh, Paul Odegaard, who's from a, an, like an NGO that works on corruption within FIFA, they published an article about Motsepe, two articles actually about Motsepe, and I'd recommend that people go read it. But to the point about Motsepe, who's the new president of CAF, Motsepe, uh, when he was elected, made a lot of noises about, you know, people like, oh, is he going to, you know, is he going to talk about the corruption in FIFA, about the, the, the money that doesn't get spent or the deficit, like they've lost all this money, they, they lose the TV deals, CAF doesn't have any money. Is he going to talk about that? And then the, his big thing was, no. We need to talk about partnerships with the private sector. So that's the new Absolutely. path. So take that, take that, you know, do, do with that what you want to. That's the new calf. <laughs> the new calf cares about the private sector. So on, on that uplifting note. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, we've got some great football ahead of us. Maybe we can enjoy that and then think about the doomed future of African football afterwards. But for now, I'm, I'm backing Senegal. I think they're going to be my team for the tournament. Who are you going to back, Sean? It's Algeria. I'm, I'm saying it's Algeria. Algeria. I'm going to be okay. proven so wrong by all of this. Maybe Morocco, do do a... maybe Morocco comes and wins the whole thing. But <sighs> maybe. I maybe. will be I on think, Twitter, look, though. On Twitter, I'm yeah. going to run from at Sean Jacobs. I'll be running uh, with the hashtag uh, 11 named people. I will be doing that that uh, that thing where you say uh, 
you know, you're backing a team based on like a certain set of criteria that have nothing to do with football on the field. <laughs> so I think I have to, I can't come up with like how many people do you have that are, that are, um, that are born in Africa or African descent, because come on, everybody who's going to play here is African, <laughs> yeah, African, yeah. Or African descent. It's so I think it's going to be something like, are you, do you have an authoritarian state? How, um, how neoliberal, how, I don't know, do we have to come up with some, it needs two other criteria. Tough. It's going to be really it's gonna be tough, tough. To try or like what's your, distinguishing or, or your music. I think Niger, every time Nigeria plays, they get a point for having better music. Um, yeah. I think it's going to be music, um, or actually, actually, hold on. Do you have footballers who have made music? I have footballers who have made music. Footballers who are charitable, maybe. Uh, ah, come on, you and your charity. That's that's so neoliberal of your will. <laughs> it's but it's it's like you're trying to find out if these are good or interesting guys. Okay, actually, why don't we say, why don't we say, do you have footballers who make, um, do you have histories of like footballers who make, who make uh, noises, like, you know, when you're not charitable, but like good. Yeah, who are outspoken. With good, yeah, outspoken. good politics. I mean, for example, if Cameroon played, come, it, it would, it, they would, on that one, they would probably always lose because most of their footballers yes. side with the regime. With some yeah. exceptions. Joseph Antoine Bell and some others, but in general, Samuel Eto, Jeremy, all these players, they're super. There's been articles written about them, about their relationship with Paul Bia, or kind of being sort of, you know, making excuses for the for the Cameroonian government. Um, so I, I'd have to think of the categories. I think definitely one of them is: Do you have a democracy, or are you authoritarian? <laughs> and then, but I need the other two. Like maybe the one is: Do you have? Do your, do, your, do your players make music? I think Ghana would win there. Remember Asamoah Gyan? Easily. With that of song course, made? of yeah. course. So Ghana might win that. But yeah, I'll, I'll have to come up with the criteria before Sunday. As to like, well, what is, what we'll are the get criteria? this episode out. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to it, and if you make it this far, I'm addressing our, our listeners. Do tweet at Africa's a country or at Sean Jacobs and recommend some criterion to him. Before the tournament begins, I'm gonna. Uh, maybe I'll just I'll just make a I'll, I'll send out a I'll send out a notice asking people for what should yeah, our criteria be? Yeah, just to get it just to get it going. Yeah, excellent. Well, how do they say in French? Allez, allez, Algérie. Allez, allez, allez. Allez, Algérie. Okay. Well, Sean, thank you so much for swinging by. Everyone, do check out Sean's new Substack. It's called 11 Named People. You can find it at 11namedpeople.substack.com. More stuff is coming there. And thank you, as always, to listening to Africa's a Country Talk. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and especially on your favorite podcasting platform. New episodes are out every single week. Do rate and review us, and we appreciate all of the support. And we will see you next time. <laughs>